Let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Father, as we start a new series of studies now, looking at the minor prophets and starting this morning in the book of Hosea, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. Lord, may these not be just dusty old historical accounts. Lord, may these be fresh. Lord, may these be full of life and vitality for us. Lord, may they speak to us. Lord, your word is alive. Your word says of itself that it is living and powerful. So, Lord, right where we are this morning in our own lives, our own walks, Lord, whatever's going on around us, Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. Uh, And may we be encouraged through the things that your word reveals to us. So we just give you this time now and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, we are going to start a series going through the Minor Prophets. What are the Minor Prophets, you may ask? Well, if we look at the Bible, of course we're familiar with the books of the Bible as they are. The first five books of the Bible typically are referred to as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books that Moses compiled. Genesis was compiled from things that Adam had written, others had written, uh, and so on. Brought it all together, and then things were obviously just tidied up. And then we have the account, obviously, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and so on. And then we get to Exodus, uh, and Moses, of course, then writes these things down. Jesus himself said that Moses wrote them, so we don't need to be in any doubt. Uh, and then obviously the rest of those books give us the, the law. Very, very important. The law had to be in place. Uh, but then we go on. The next section of books in the Old Testament are the historical books. And that takes us from the time of Joshua right the way through the beginning of the kingdom, the time of Judges, then the beginning of the kingdom with Saul and then David, uh, and subsequently Solomon, the divided kingdom, uh, the Babylonian captivity, and then after that Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. Now, they're all historical books. Um, lots of information, lots of teaching, instruction, but largely they're historical accounts. Then we have the group that are referred to as the poetical books. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And of course, these have uh, just incredible accounts in their own right. Uh, there's history amongst it, but there's also a lot of wisdom. They're sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature. Um, so these are the, that group. Uh, then we have the major prophets, as they are called. And these are really not particularly helpful designations for them. But we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. In the middle there, you've got Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah. Um, so those are like the major prophets. Um, and this, they're referred to being as the major prophets simply because their books tend to be longer. It's not because they're more important or any other thing. Uh, it's simply that they, they wrote more, so they're referred to as the major prophets. So then we come on in the Old Testament. The last group in the Old Testament are the minor prophets. Now, once again, it's not because they're not important. It's not because they were of less value. It's just typically the books were shorter. Uh, now, in some cases, that's true, but you'll see the Hosea actually is 13 chapters uh, as opposed to Daniel, which was only 12 chapters. So it doesn't always follow. So... Um, anyway, um, those are the, the, the books we're going to be looking at now, these minor prophets. Now, Hosea, we're going to begin a study of this morning. Really, this theme there is that the Lord loves Israel despite her sin. And we're going to see that played out in these chapters we're going to study. The book of Joel really gives us this whole account that judgment is coming and that judgment is going to precede Israel's future revival. Now, you'll get the flavor here that that Israel very much at the center of these things. The book of Amos then uh, is in this first group uh, of the minor prophets. uh, And really the theme there is that God is just. And because he's just, he must judge sin. You know, a lot of people seem to have this idea that, well, if God is a God of love, can't just, you know, just forget about it? No, no, because if God is a God of love, then he has to be a God of justice. If he's a God of justice, then he must see that sin is punished. And that's what Amos really nails for us. Obadiah, this short little book, uh, and it's this uh, really account, it's, it's the, showing that, that God will bring retribution. Uh, particularly in the face of a merciless pride in regard to those who are opposed to him. Of course, the book of Jonah, we're very familiar with Jonah, that prophet that goes off eventually, after God explains the program a little more clearly with the help of a big fish, uh, eventually goes off to Nineveh. And that's, uh, the theme really is that divine grace is universal. 
That it's not just for the Jews, that this, this gospel of grace, as it were, is for the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, is what we're told in John 3.16. The book of Micah really nails the fact that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but that the Messiah is coming, and he's coming to deliver his people. The book of Nahum then really we have a little bit later on than Jonah that doom is prophesied to come upon a wicked Nineveh. Though they repented at the preaching of Jonah, they very quickly reverted to their old ways. And so Nahum steps onto the scene and provides his prophecy, this short little book, uh, just again, prophecy of the judgment that was to come on Nineveh. And with a few years of him writing that, that was fulfilled. Habakkuk. Really, the theme is that justification is by faith, not by works, not by anything we can do, not by our efforts. And it's a, it's a great book that really nails that. And, and in the New Testament, Paul uses a quote from Habakkuk uh, in three different books. He uses it in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. And I do believe that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, because we have this trilogy uh, that base, uh, all based around Habakkuk's statement that the just shall live by faith. Then we have the book of Zephaniah. Just again, a short little book, but it really again speaks that the day of the Lord is going to precede the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. We, we pray, Jesus said, we should pray, thy kingdom come. What are we praying we're not praying for, for God's uh, kingdom. God's kingdom is already in existence. We don't need to pray for that to come. No, the kingdom we're praying for is the kingdom from heaven. Matthew is the only gospel writer that refers to the kingdom of heaven. But really, uh, I, my birthplace was Deal in Kent. So I could say I'm Barry of Deal. Well, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven. I could say I'm Barry of Deal or Barry from Deal. You understand the same, both would apply. In the sense of the kingdom, it's speaking of the kingdom that is coming from heaven to earth. It's the kingdom over which Jesus will preside and rule and reign uh, on this earth. The book of Haggai. Well, the challenge there is consider your ways. God must be number one. The challenge goes to Israel, but it's such an applicable book for us. Uh, we'll enjoy that when we get there. Uh, and then Zechariah. Really there, it's all about uh, repentant Israel will eventually see their Messiah. They rejected him the first time, but eventually Israel will see that Jesus is the Messiah. And then finally, to round off the Old Testament, we have the book of Malachi. Um, and again, the judgment is certain for the wicked. It's kind of the underlying theme. Now, these will all be in the slides. It'll be online later now. Uh, and so on. So if you want to kind of look in detail at these charts and things, and some of these I've borrowed online and you know, adapted them a little bit, but um, that's just the books of the Bible as to where they've uh, where they fall in terms of timeline. Just roughly gives you an indication. Obviously, what we're interested in is the minor prophets, which you can see kind of highlighted there. Um, just to go through them, then um, Hosea again, the first one that we have in this group of twelve minor prophets. That's the what we're where we're going to start this morning. From roughly round about seven ninety three, around about eight hundred BC, down to seven twenty two BC. Now, I don't expect you to remember all the dates. I have to throw dates out. Um, there are a couple of dates that are really important. Seven twenty two BC is one of those. That is when the Northern Kingdom of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians. Okay, so 722 BC, that's when that happened, and that's when the northern kingdom were taken away from the land. The other date that's significant is 606 BC, uh, because that's the date that Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. We were going through that in our study of Daniel, and that's when the southern kingdom, or Judah, are effectively taken out of the land. So those two key dates, 722 BC, and then just over 100 years later, in 606 BC, the northern kingdom first, and then the southern kingdom. So we start with Hosea. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and we'll go into details in a short while as we get into that. The book of Joel is probably the earliest of all the prophets, which is why it's really quite fascinating, because he deals with themes that are still yet in our future. Whereas most of the minor prophets deal with things that were within a few hundred years of their own time, Joel speaks with clarity about what is going to happen. And I can't wait to get into the study of the book of Joel because there's some fascinating things there that really uh, speak about what we're going through, the days we're in, what we can expect, uh, and so on. So a great little book to study. Uh, only a three-chapter book in Joel. Um, 
four in the Hebrew, uh, four chapters in the Hebrew, only three in the English, which is fine. We'll go through that as we get there. The book of Amos, next on the list. Uh, Amos also was a contemporary of Hosea. Uh, and Hosea was just after Amos. Amos had come preaching very, very firm uh, message uh, from the Lord, a prophet to the northern kingdom. They didn't listen to Amos. And Hosea comes with a much softer, gentler message of love, and they didn't listen to him either. Obadiah, this really, really short little book, um, it gives us a prophecy concerning Edom. The really interesting thing is the timing at which it occurs. It's given hundreds of years before ultimately the things that are recorded in the book will be played out. And it really speaks the way that Edom, the descendants of Esau, uh, the area of modern-day Jordan, was so antagonistic towards Israel. And when the Assyrians first of all came to the northern kingdom, they were brutal. But rather than lending any support or anything else, Edom saw that Israel was in trouble and effectively put the boot in. Uh, they caused even more problems. And then the same happened in 606 when the southern kingdom was taken. Edom also were very cruel to their brothers. And, and remember that Jacob and Esau were brothers. So they were related, these, these family lines. Um, but Edom so cruel toward Israel. And so Obadiah deals with God's response to that. Jonah also very early on, uh, in terms of the prophets, uh, from about 780, 750, somewhere around there. These are just approximate dates. Different commentaries will give you different ideas, but they're roughly in this time frame. Uh, some of them we, we can pinpoint a little better because of the details of the kings involved um, at that time. But uh, Jonah, of course, is a prophet um, to Nineveh. We know the, the account. We'll obviously deal with that when we get there. Uh, Micah, prophecies for Israel and Judah, uh, about seven... 40 to 690 BC, that period of time that he prophesies in. Nahum, again, just deals with the burden of Nineveh. So again, this is sometime after, I mentioned this a little while ago. Habakkuk was a prophet specifically to Judah, because if you look at the date, 625 BC, well, by then the northern kingdom had been taken away captive, because the northern kingdom was taken captive in what year? 722, that's right. The date I should try and remember, that one. Because it's just that when you try to piece it together from the Old Testament, it's those two dates, 722 BC for the Northern Kingdom, 606 BC for the Southern Kingdom. It helps you kind of get a, a kind of framework of where things were. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so Habakkuk 625 is obviously has to be to Judah because Israel are gone by that point, the Northern Kingdom. Zephaniah, exactly the same, uh, same period of time. And then finally, uh, the last few, Haggai, uh, also that period of time. In fact, Haggai is one of the post-exile prophets. There's three of these that prophesied after the remnant had come back from Babylon. Zechariah, another one of those, again, prophesies to the returned exiles. And then finally, Malachi is the, the last of the prophets. It kind of wraps up and concludes the Old Testament. Uh, somewhere around about up to 400 BC. So that's the Minor Prophets. That's what over the, the next few weeks, however long it takes to go through, uh, we're not going to be kind of going quite as granular detail as we did going through Daniel, because uh, we just want to move through these and just get a good overview of them. Um, but that's what we see. So with that, let's get into the book of Hosea. And uh, the intention this morning is to just get through two chapters. So I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time. I uh, just want to get a good overview, good understanding, and really set the scene um, for the rest of the study. So well, what do we know about Hosea? Well, he's often referred to as the loving prophet. And clearly he was a man that had incredible compassion, incredible love, we see. He's often referred to as the Jeremiah of the North. Now, um, in our Thursday Bible studies, when we come back in September after our uh, little break for August, uh, Lord willing, if we're not raptured before then, then the intention will be that we're going to start to study uh, the book of Jeremiah. We've just gone through Isaiah, um, so the intention is we're going to move into Jeremiah on our, our, our weekly Thursday studies. Um, but Jeremiah, incredible book, but you see this man's heart. Jeremiah is one of my favorite characters of the Bible. You know, because the world often judges things by success or failure. And the world has its measures of what's successful or not successful. Jeremiah was the most unsuccessful prophet you could imagine. He failed terribly. Nobody listened to him. Nobody repented at his preaching. Nobody cared what he was saying. But you know what? He was the most successful because he was obedient. 
And, and I've said before that, you know, actually for Christians, we should remove the word success from our vocabulary and we should replace it with the word obedience. Because success isn't a measure that God is really interested in. It's obedience. God can do anything, anything he wants at any time through any person or without anybody. So success is kind of a bit of a misnomer when it, in regard to God. So it's not about whether we're successful or perceived to be successful. The real issue is, are we being obedient? Are we following God? Are we trusting him? Are we where he wants us to be? Regardless of what the external situation looks like. Well, Jeremiah is the epitome of that. Jeremiah was successful by God's standard because he was obedient. Even though people didn't listen to him, he was a voice that proclaimed God's word. And boy, does he speak to us. So we really look forward to, to going through that in our uh, weekly studies when we get to September onwards. Um, but Hosea, in a similar vein, was a, a, a man who was so obedient to God, didn't grumble, didn't complain. In fact, I don't think there's any reference uh, in the book at all to Hosea complaining about the situation that God places him in. You and I might really complain and say, Lord, this isn't fair. Yeah, we often use that, don't we? It's not fair. You know, what do we really mean by that? We mean that we're out of our comfort zone. You know, what's fair is that God judges us, and that we all spend eternity separated from God. That would be fair, because that's what we deserve, because we've all fallen short of God's standard, we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God. As the part of the old Anglican um, prayer book used to say, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. It's one of those things. It's either that we're ignorant of something and we've got it wrong, or we're weak, or we intentionally did something wrong. And that's, that's the state, state with all of us. So when we talk about, you know, is it fair? You know, well, really, what wasn't fair? In fact, there's a great, great little quote, wasn't there? It's why do good things happen to bad... Oh, sorry, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And the response is, that only happened once, and he volunteered. There was only one good person, that was Jesus Christ. And... Bad things happened to him because he volunteered to take our sin upon himself. Hosea's name means salvation. It comes from the same root as Joshua or Jehoshua. Okay, you see the, the kind of the, the uh, contraction there in the word. Uh, but his name means salvation. Jeho- uh, Joshua means the Lord saves, and Joshua effectively is the Hebrew version of Jesus, Yeshua. The Lord saves. But Hosea, his name means salvation. And, and what a great name for the message that he's going to bring to a people that were stubborn or hard-hearted. Interestingly, Hosea is actually quoted more than 30 times in the New Testament, uh, which is more than any other of the minor prophets. A man by the name of George Robinson, commentator, said this, In all the world's literature, there is no record of human love like that of Hosea. Now, I would question the, the statement in as much as, of course, the Bible is the record of human love, but it's the love of Jesus Christ who took on human form. That is the only comparison. But actually, the reason that George Robinson quite rightly says what he says is because this is intentionally a model of God's love for us. Some of you may be familiar with uh, G. Campbell Morgan great Bible teacher and commentator, scholar, said this, we have in the book of Hosea one of the most arresting revelations of the real nature of sin and one of the clearest interpretations of the strength of the divine love. No one can read the story of Hosea without realizing the agony of his heart. Then lift the human to the level of the infinite and know this, that sin wounds the heart of God. What a statement. Henrietta C. Mears, um, great book, What the Bible is All About, makes this statement. Hosea is one of the greatest lovers in all literature. We find his love so strong that even the worst actions of an unfaithful wife could not kill it. Hosea, we're going to see as we go into the first verse in a moment, lived during this golden age in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II, um, it was a, a great time for the nation, they were prosperous and so on. But things were starting to fade as Jeroboam's reign came to an end. Uh, and there was this like dark cloud hanging over the nation, which of course was this looming threat from Assyria, who were growing militarily and growing in strength and mind and so on, and subduing other nations round about. 
And we find that once Jeroboam II dies, now there's two Jeroboams. There was the first king of the northern kingdom. So after Solomon, the kingdom divides. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He takes us south. Jeroboam, this other individual, says, well, okay, we don't want to serve Solomon's dynasty. We don't want to follow Rehoboam. And he leads ten tribes away, effectively, which is what becomes the northern kingdom, which becomes known as Israel just the northern kingdom. Um, so that was Jeroboam I, who refer, is referred to as the son of Nebat. That was his father. Um, and there's this constant refrain as you read through uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles and so on. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Uh, that, that's his plaque. If he had a gravestone, that would be on it. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. That's not a good title to have uh, a you know, gravestone or you know, be remembered by. But later on then in history, and we'll show you where these fit in in a while, Jeroboam II now becomes king and, as I say, prosperous for a time. But when he dies, we find that six kings will follow in relatively quick succession. And within 24 years, four of them were assassinated. A really turbulent time for the nation. And it's midway through Hosea's ministry that a large part of the nation were carried away by the Assyrians, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes, typically. In fact, just to clarify, there is this uh, myth uh, that's propagated about the ten lost tribes. If you haven't heard of it, you might stumble across it. Just to, to be clear on this one, when the kingdom divided between north and south, the priests who were up north all headed down, so these are Levites, they all headed down to Jerusalem because they didn't want to serve under Jeroboam the first. So they left and came down south. And conversely, those down south that were quite happy to get involved in idolatry all went up north. So there was a kind of an intermingling of these tribes. There was a, a thing that was propagated um, which went under various names. One of them was British Israelism. And the idea was put forward that these ten lost tribes got separated around Europe and so on. And of course, uh, Denmark was the tribe of Dan because it begins with Dan. So it's, yeah, so... Very, very loose connection. But that's how these things were propagated uh, and so on. So, And the idea that some of the tribes of Israel came and settled in this country and so on. And it led all sorts of to, to strange uh, and erroneous ideas. Um, there is not ten lost tribes. None of the tribes are lost. You only need to look to Revelation chapter 7 and you find all 12 tribes are there, present and accounted for. Uh, and uh, God hasn't lost any of them. He knows where they all are. Um, so if you hear of that myth, then, then you can dismiss it straight away. Nevertheless, those that were dwelling in the north, and predominantly it was the geographical area that those ten tribes had inhabited, those were taken away by the Assyrians. And you go to the British Museum, you can see the reliefs on the wall in the British Museum. Uh, and they, they literally used to kind of sew through their, their nose or through their ears and put the human chains together. Um, it makes it very hard to escape uh, in, in that way. And that's what the Assyrians did. Uh, they were very cruel. Um, but there was one, it was a very effective way of uh, getting slaves to... to to be obedient. Um, at the end of Hosea's life, then, the kingdom of Israel comes to an end with the fall of Samaria. And Hosea lived to see some of his own prophecies actually fulfilled. Uh, I'm sure heartbreaking to him. So what's the story of the book? Well, Hosea is told to go and marry a wife of whoredoms, or literally a prostitute. And then there's debate. Some people say, well, you know, she became this later. And others have tried to say, well, it was just a, an allegory. It didn't really happen. It was just a story. No, no. I believe from the text, it's very clear that, that this is a, a historical account of what took place. And God said to Hosea, I want you to go marry this person. And clearly, there's a love there. It's not just some sort of arranged marriage that was set up by God and, and Hosea was not really interested in it. No, Hosea clearly was invested in this relationship. So he marries this lady by the name of Goma and they have three children together. The first of which is uh, a boy by the name of Jezreel. And the name means, it's double actually, it means God scatters but also sows. So you get the idea of scattering and sowing. It's all part of the same thing. Same thing. So that's the name. And these names specifically God gives to illustrate the points that he's trying to make. Then he has a daughter by the name of Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. Um, you can imagine her growing up and saying, Dad, why did you call me that? Uh, well, it's because God said to call you that because. And, and it becomes an object lesson to the nation. And then uh, the last one, uh, Lo Ami, which means you are not my people. 
A key verse in the book, um, well, there's a couple of key verses, I suppose. Uh, chapter 14, I think earlier I said there's 13 chapters. I apologize, there's 14 chapters. Um, chapter 14, verse 1 says, O Israel, return unto Jehovah thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. God pleading with the nation. And then verse 4 says, I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely. Despite Israel's iniquity, despite all the mistakes they made, God says, I still love you. Let's just pause there for a second because what a great word of encouragement to us. You know, despite all the things that have gone on in our lives, despite the things that we have done, things that we look back now and we're ashamed of and we wish we could just turn back time and erase those things, God says, I still love you. God still loves us passionately. God wants to heal us, to turn us around, that we can walk together with him. God is a God of reconciliation and restoration. And we see that theme come through. The key words, well, the word return is used 15 times in the book. Um, Hornum is used 16 times. Uh, and again, it refers not only to Israel's immorality, but also to her unfaithfulness to God. So God paints this picture of this couple, Gomer and Dozzy Hosea, uh, as being like God and his people. And this is the kind of relationship uh, that's being depicted here. Just a very quick summary of the book. So uh, in the opening chapter, we're going to get Hosea's call and then the rejection of Israel because of their iniquity. Then the restoration of Israel is promised. And then going into chapter 2, God's warning against Israel's unfaithfulness and judgment are all prophesied ahead of time. But then the chapter ends, as we'll see in a moment, with a future blessing being foretold for the nation. So despite all that has happened and all that God said is going to happen, God does not give up on them. And then we have in chapter 3, the redemption of Hosea's wife is a type of Israel's ultimate return to God. Chapter 4 through 10, then we have God's controversy with his people, the argument that God puts against them for their ways. And then in wrath, uh, chapters 11 to 13, God remembers his mercy. You know, mercy is there because judgment is applicable. But because God is gracious, because God is merciful, we're told that mercy triumphs over judgment. It means a price still has to be paid, but God provides a remedy in that as well. And then the last chapter, Israel are urged to repent and enjoy blessing. So that's the what we've got coming uh, over the next few weeks. So let's just jump into chapter 1. It's a very short chapter. We read the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this is when the, the ministry of Hosea starts. And we're given the kings down the south, who was reigning, and the king up the north is reigning. So just very quickly, if you look at that, the kings of the south, you see them highlighted in the yellow boxes there. So Uzziah or uh, Azariah is how we have him often written in the text. Uh, and then Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that's the, the period of time there, the kings that are ruling in the southern kingdom. Okay, And it's during Hezekiah's reign, 722 BC, that Israel go into captivity. And then if we look at the north, the kings that are reigning in the north, you see that we've got a family line. In fact, just very quickly, if we go back to the beginning, you start, as you said earlier, with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all Israel sin. His son comes to the throne, but only for a couple of years. And then there's a change of dynasty, and that's only there for a very couple of years. Another change of dynasty, then another. And then Omri obviously has Ahab, dreadful king. Ahaziah and Jehoram sit on the throne. But then those are destroyed by this man Jehu. And this is all in Second Kings chapter 10. And uh, those chapters around there. Um, and then Jehu is told by the Lord that because he gets rid of this evil house of Omri or Ahab, this line of there, that God would let four descendants, four generations of his children sit on the throne. And that's exactly what we have. So Jehu is, becomes this king of the northern kingdom. And then Jehoaz, his son, his grandson Joash, 
his great-grandson, Jeroboam, and that's the one that we're, we're interested in. It's this period of time. And then finally, Zechariah. But Zechariah only six months. So it's a very short period of time. And then God removes that. And you'll see that in a second come out. So that's why I'm highlighting it. And then another change of dynasty. Then another. Then another. And so on. It's just a complete mishmash. And just, just turmoil, really. Uh, and then finally getting down to Hosea at the bottom there, 722, which is when the Assyrians finally come. And Hosea, again, through the whole of that period, really speaking, but the word of the Lord is coming to him at the beginning or during Jeroboam's reigns, so right at the top of that, that list there. Verse 2 says, at the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, okay, so this is the start of it, and the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Now, reading through a lot of the commentaries, nobody seems to mention this. Um, and I throw it out there because I might be wrong. Um, and I'll let you do some digging. And if you come up with a, a different view or you think I'm right, then by all means, you know, share your opinion with me. But it seems to be, and we'll see this come out later, that not only is he told to go and marry this lady by the name of Goma, but he's also told not just to take a wife, but to take children. It would seem that she's already had children by other lovers. And that he's told to go not only take her, but take responsibility for the children that she's already had. Because this is before he then has his own offspring through her. So that seems to be the situation. Uh, but we're told that this is all to be a, a, like a lesson to the nation. This is for the land has committed great whoredom. God is saying... I wanted to be as your husband. I wanted to be the one to look after you, to care for you, to provide for you. But you've rejected me and you've gone after false gods. And that's the, the message that's being portrayed here. Now we might think it's a bit dramatic, God asking Hosea to do something. Well, first of all, Hosea doesn't complain. But secondly, you know, do we understand the horror of sin? You know, God goes to these lengths to try and get the nation's attention. And we have this record in God's word, which will be there for eternity, to show us just how much God hates anything that comes in between the relationship that he has with his people. And sin, we don't understand just how horrific it is. If you want to get a glimpse of how horrible sin is to God, then read the book of Leviticus and look at the bloodshed and it makes you sick as you read it and you see all these animals being sacrificed and you think, why would God do this? And then you realize that God is trying to show you the cost of sin. That God is holy and that we have moved so far away. The only way back is through that shedding of blood and again Leviticus goes through all of this and uh, gives real clarity to it. Ultimately, it took the death of Jesus Christ, who took upon himself every vile and offensive thought and idea and action. He took it all upon himself. When we think, think of, of sin, we tend to think of something that, you know, well, that's a bit naughty. No, the sin is horrific in God's eyes because it, it pulls us away from our creator. It divides between the relationship that we were supposed to have. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden, everything was wonderful? It was perfect until Eve looked at that fruit. And I've said before, you know, how much of the fruit, it wasn't an apple, just to make it clear, it wasn't an apple because we still have apples and whatever fruit it was, we don't have access to it. It wasn't an apple. But whatever fruit it was, the moment Eve looked at that fruit, the sin was committed. You know, I've asked the question, you know, how much did she have to bite before she'd sinned? You know, was it just a little bit of a lick or was it, you know, just a, just a, just a teeny weeny? No, no. Because the moment she looked at it, she looked with that, that lust, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is what we're told in First John. And the moment she looked at it, she'd already committed the act of sin in her heart, the act of rebellion. As she's reaching out a hand, the sin is already committed. All that happens then is just the following through, the outplaying of what had already been decided in a heart. And that's what Jesus says, that sin comes from within. It comes from the heart. The outward stuff is just the overflowing of what's already gone on inside. That's why just harping back to what we were saying about Daniel, the incredible thing about Daniel was that Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel had decided before he got there what the outcome was going to be. 
That's how we need to be. And, you know, without God's grace, we couldn't do it. But God gives us his grace so that we can, like Daniel did, choose to live a life. And God will give us the strength and the ability to do it, a life that's pleasing to him. So, David Guzik made this statement. He said that some commentators believe this never really happened and that Hosea is only telling a vivid story. They think it could never have happened because God would never have a prophet marry a prostitute. But Boyce, one of the commentators, rightly observes, if Hosea's story cannot be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. And that's the point of this book, to drive home the incredible love that God has for us, that Jesus Christ has for each one of us. So verse 3 carries on. So he went into Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. So now this is the first child that he has with Gomer. And the Lord said unto him, unto Hosea, call his name Jezreel. And then he says this, this is the reason, for yet a little while and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. And I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, in 2 Kings, we have this account of Ahab. We're told that Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu, because God had already spoken to him and sent a prophet to him saying, you're going to become king, Jehu goes about killing and getting rid of all of the house of Ahab. All these, this, this wicked line is this very corrupt family. Uh, Ahab, you remember, is the one that uh, Elijah uh, has this uh, conflict on with on the top of Mount Carmel. Of course, God steps in and deals with that. Um, and verse 30 of chapter 10 of Second Kings says this, And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and has done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, Thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And I showed you earlier that it was four generations subsequently of Jehu's descendants to sit on the throne. But the, the sad verse, and this is why this, this verse 4 in Hosea chapter 1 makes sense, because then verse 31 of 2 Kings 10 says, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. So, God gives him the throne. God promises him descendants of the fourth generation. And you'd think he'd be grateful. You'd think that would be enough to make him obedient. But he wasn't. He didn't care about the things of God. And so God now says, okay, I want to, to, to Hosea, call your son Jezreel. Because what's going to happen is I'm going to avenge the blood that Jehu's shed because Jehu has no regard for him whatsoever. It was all, that all took place in the, the Jezreel Valley in Israel. And that's why this dislocation, that's where Jehu had killed the descendants of Ahab and so on. And he goes, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So the warning that God is given, and this young boy, this child that's born, is given the name Jezreel to say, I'm going to avenge the blood of Jezreel. In other words, Jeroboam, your kingdom is going to come to an end. But not only that, the whole northern kingdom is going to be taken away. And really, it speaks of the coming scattering. You remember I said that Jezreel means scattering. Okay, so that's the first of the meanings, that Israel is soon going to be scattered in exile by Assyria. And then the valley of Jezreel, which is also the place that we know as Armageddon. That, that's the same place. Geographically, there's, there's this valley in the middle of Israel that runs down. It's called the Jezreel Valley is the place we know as Armageddon. It's the same physical location. And again, this is where Jehu, and he said, the great granddad uh, um, of uh, Jeroboam II, had killed the descendants of Ahab. So that's what I just read a moment ago. And so through the naming of Jezreel, God was confirming his promise to avenge the bloodshed in Jezreel by judging the house of Jehu. Verse 5, and it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What does that mean, break the bow? Well, we, we would tend to think of us as bow and arrows. That's, that's initially what comes to mind. But actually you find the way the word bow is used in Scripture is consistent and it's always the symbol of a covenant. Think of a rainbow. It's a covenant. It's a symbol of a covenant. 
In Revelation chapter 6, this individual who's going to step onto the world scene, we typically call Antichrist, is going to come with a bow. Not, not a rainbow or anything else. It's going to be a covenant that he's going to establish. It's not going to be a bow, an arrow bow. It's a covenant that he will establish with Israel. So what God is saying is, I'm going to break the covenant with Israel. And it will be broken in the Jezreel Valley, and obviously Israel are going to be scattered as a result. And it was from here, eventually, that Israel were scattered among the nations, first to Assyria, and then obviously globally from then on, of course, AD 70, with the Romans, uh, those that were back in the land were then scattered and sent out from that point. Now, I just want to clarify this, because for some, they think, well, they, they go, God's, you know, nullified the covenant that he had with Israel. So that, that covenant it no longer exists. So therefore, Israel are no longer part of God's plan or uh, whatever. And this has led to the common view held by the Roman Catholic Church, which at the time of Henry VIII became the Anglican Church. And that, that idea spread into that. And because of that, it typically went into all the denominational churches, this idea that God has finished with Israel. Okay, and it leads to something that's referred to as replacement theology. And the idea there is that God has replaced Israel with the church. That now the church are God's people, and all the blessings that once were promised to Israel are now for the church. Well, it's utter nonsense, because when you look through Scripture, as we're going to see, God is very clear that he hasn't cast off Israel. And we'll see that. But let me just give you just a quick overview of some of the covenants. There's three major covenants that God makes with Israel. Firstly, there was the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 15 is where we read about that. And the, the basic promise, we read in Genesis 12 as well, but that, that in his seed all nations are going to be blessed. Then the second covenant, God's covenant with Israel, that if they faithfully serve him, they prosper, but if they forsook him, they'd be punished. And then finally, God's covenant with David, that his family would be the ones who would produce the Messiah. The Messiah would come from that family line of David's, who would reign over God's people forever. Now, the thing to, to note here is that these covenants, oops, go back one. The first covenant, the God's covenant with Israel regarding the land and regarding the nations being blessed was unconditional. Abraham had nothing to do with that. He didn't have to sign up to it or anything else. The second covenant, or the, sorry, the third covenant with David is unconditional. God promises David, irrespective of whether he's going to obey or disobey. But the middle one is the one we're looking at here in Hosea, and this is the one we were in question. It, it was very clear, Deuteronomy 28 is abundantly clear that God says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. That was the, the condition, that was the covenant. But if they were to disobey, then God would bring judgment upon them. Okay, so there are a number of covenants. The one that is being referenced here is effectively that middle one, the one that was given at the time of the law, Mount Sinai, Moses, and so on. And it was all about whether they would be obedient to God as a nation. But God never, ever in his word says that he would get rid of permanently Israel. Verse 6, And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. This is the northern kingdom specifically, okay? But then we have the southern kingdom mentioned. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. What does all that mean? Well, Israel, the northern kingdom, were eventually overthrown by the Assyrians in 722 BC. I think I mentioned that earlier. And they were taken away. utterly taken away out of the land. But the southern kingdom, Judah, at the same time, the king of Assyria comes down to have a go at Hezekiah with the intention of overthrowing Jerusalem and taking the southern kingdom captive. Hezekiah cries out to God and please, it's, it's a great bit. It's recorded in Isaiah and it's recorded in Kings for us as well. And, Isaiah, and Hezekiah goes to Isaiah. Isaiah seeks the Lord and the, the response is, the Lord is going to deal with this situation for you. The Lord will fight for you. And what happens? Well, 185,000 Assyrian troops 
are mysteriously wiped out. Not by bow, or by sword, or by battle, or by horses, or by horsemen. So exactly as was prophesied here, over a hundred years before it took place, no, correction, sorry, not over a hundred years, this is somewhere, probably anything up to about 50 years before the event, when Assyria comes down to the southern kingdom, they are not victorious because they were proud, they were arrogant, they were boasting against God, and God destroys them. And Hezekiah and Jerusalem are spared, miraculously. You can read about that in 2 Kings 19. Now, when she had weaned Lo Rahama, she conceived and bare a son. So this is now the second son. So we have a son, a daughter, and now another son. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Okay. And, and that may seem as if God is just washing his hands with the nation. But effectively what God is doing is, I guess we could sometimes refer to it as that cold shoulder treatment. He's kind of turning around, turning away from them. Because they've rejected him. And so he's saying, okay, well, I'm going to reject you. You know, in times of prosperity, people can be very blasé toward God. And to not be gods doesn't trouble them. You know, but in a time of calamity, to have God turn away from you is terrifying. Most of the world don't care about God. They don't think about God. But you get an event like the Twin Towers when that occurred. Do you know one of the things that occurred at that point point in time was the sales of Bibles in America skyrocketed. Church attendance skyrocketed. Suddenly people realized they needed someone bigger, better, greater than they were to help. Many people turned to God at that time. And it's the same, you can look at any kind of catastrophe through history. People will run to God when they are in times of need. But the rest of the time, they don't care about God. And this is really the the situation that at this point, Israel were relatively prosperous. And although this threat was looming, they were given over to idolatry, idol worship, and some horrible practices that we won't go through this morning. Yet the number of the children of Israel, now notice this, because... This is where sometimes people just take a verse and they take it out of context. They say, well, God's going to get rid of Israel. Yeah, but look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. What a great promise. I mean, this should put an end to the whole idea of replacement theology, that God has finished with Israel. Because here, God is saying through Hosea that, yes, God is going to cast them away, but there's going to come a time that they're going to be brought back, and they will be gods. Then shall be the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. And interestingly enough, Jezreel, as we said earlier, also means to gather. There's a play on the words on the name here. She'll be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. They're going to have one king over them. Now, Israel and Judah have come back together. They are back in their land. They're no longer considered Israel and Judah. They're just considered the nation of Israel. Now, from 1948 onwards, that's what they've been. They don't yet have a king ruling over them yet, but that's coming. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And there's a double play there, because Jezreel again, the valley uh, that we refer to as Armageddon, that's going to be a great day in terms of the world's um, armies are going to be amassed together to come with the intention of wiping out and destroying Israel. God will intervene. And God will come. Israel will be gathered. Those that are scattered around the world will be gathered back together. And God will protect them, look after them, establish them, and set up his throne. Let's just go through chapter 2. Say you unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Rumah. Okay, so this seems to be now Hosea, that actually is the, the one speaking this. Say to your brethren, to Ami, to your sisters, Rumah, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. So again, Hosea speaking. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of the sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. So here we have a father pleading with his children. 
And you think of this in the bigger context of God pleading with his people. God pleads with us that we would walk with him, that we would serve him. Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. You see, even in all of her whoredoms and her adulteries and everything else, clearly Hosea was still providing for her. But we tend to forget that God still provides for us even when we are being disobedient. Every heartbeat is a gift of God. Every breath is a gift of God. The air that we breathe, everything is because of God. We can't do anything about those things. You don't make your heart beat. God has set it in motion. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has done all of that. God has set the world so that it functions as it functions. But notice here that Hosea was still providing, even though she'd forgotten him. God still provides for us, even if we are running away from him, even if we are in a place or have been in a place where we didn't acknowledge him. Verse 4, and I will not have mercy upon her children. Notice that play on the child's name there, Lo-Rahama, to not have mercy. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they, um, uh, for, uh, they be the children of whoredoms. Now, this is another one of the verses that seems to imply, which is, and I will not have mercy upon her children. Who are they? Well, they're not clearly the ones he's talking to. Because he's talking to his three kids, and he's saying, well, I'm not going to have mercy, I'm not going to provide for, I'm not going to look after those other children. Up until now, that would seem to be what he's been doing. But he's saying, it's almost a threat here, but he's saying that I'm not, because of this relationship, because she's rejected me, I'm no longer going to support her. I'm going to leave her to her own devices. Well, isn't that what God has allowed to happen to the nation of Israel? That Israel wanted to do it their own way, and God said, okay, go do it your way. And look at the problems that have come upon the nation as God has effectively stepped back, as the, their eyes have been blinded. And for the last 2,000 years, they've wandered around the world, this phrase, the wandering Jew, and so on. Hosea isn't saying he's going to reject his own children, clearly, in this. It's the other children in question. For their mother has played the harlot. That, uh, she that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. <laughs> wow. Notice this. She's going for the material things. Her whole life is based upon the acquisition of stuff. Oh, and how that can be a snare. How that can stop us really trusting God. She's going after her lovers. She's going after the ones that give me bread. She's looking for food and for water, for wool, for flax, oil, for drink. Everything that makes her life wonderful. You know, and it's easy to look at this and think, oh, it's a horrible situation. And, and why would, would Hosea kind of put up with this? But, you know, look at God with us. The things that we chase after. The things we invest our time and energies and efforts into. I mean, this is a book that speaks of the challenges that Israel faced and the way that God dealt with them, but it also speaks of the way that God calls us and says, don't get involved in those things. Don't let them become your gods. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. You see, this is the way it is with the things of the world. They promise so much, but they deliver nothing. They leave us empty. They leave us cold. She's going to chase after them, but she's not going to find what she's looking for. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. She comes to a place of being lost, empty, used, and she starts to think about the love of her husband, of Hosea, who through all of this time had been there providing for her. Yeah, it's very much like the account of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son, of course, went off and spent all his inheritance on riotous living and so on. And gets to that point is he's eating the pig's food and he suddenly thinks, this is ridiculous. 
why don't I just go back home? I'll be better being a servant for my dad than, than staying in this situation. And so he goes back, and what happens? His dad welcomes him with open arms. Yes, he'd lost his inheritance, he burned it all, he threw it all away, but he never lost his sonship. And now, here the situation, Gomer effectively saying, I've chased after these things, I've sought pleasure, I've sought satisfaction, fulfillment, from every possible direction. And it's left me empty. Let's go back to God. Effectively, this is the message for Israel, to go back to God, because it's better than Psalm 119, uh, I've not put the verse, I believe it's verse 67, says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Wow, what a great statement. You know, the Lord sometimes allows us to be afflicted. Certainly with Israel, he did. Why? To bring us to this place that we realize just how much we need and depend and rely on God. Also in Psalm 119, we read this. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I thought about my ways. I thought about the way I was living my life and turned my feet to your testimonies. I changed the direction of travel. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I've not forgotten your law. You know, some of us put ourselves in those kind of situations where we literally become tied up with the things of the world and we don't know how to escape from it. But all the time, God's law was always there. It had never been removed from our memory. And as I believe it's David in Psalm 119 states, you know, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I changed my direction of travel. Verse 8. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. And God was blessing Israel and all that they were getting, they were using in their idolatrous practices. Hosea was blessing Gomer. But she was taking all that he was providing and she was using it to provide the lifestyle that she wanted to live or thought she wanted to live. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof. And I will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. See, God is wanting this relationship. And the things he'd given had only been used to help her live the life, or help Israel live the life they wanted to live. And in the context here of home, uh, Goma, I was just taking all the stuff that Hosea was providing so she could live. And God says, okay, I'll take it back again. Joe Foch uh, tells an interesting little anecdote. Uh, speaking of these kids, uh, Joe Foch, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in uh, Philadelphia in America, uh, many of you listened to his teaching, which is fabulous. He's a great Bible teacher. Um, but he was saying that, you know, th- there was a point that as his kids were growing up, he used to come home from, from you know, the office and he'd go in the door. And, and I get this, and I have to say, it's one of the highlights of my day. And the key goes in the door, the door opens, and I hear four voices go, Daddy! Well, one of them goes, Dad, because it doesn't say Daddy anymore. But, you know, you get the idea. And, and it's just a lovely, lovely moment that my children want to see me. But Joe was talking about this and saying that was how it was for him. He's also got four children. It's kind of a Calvary pastor thing. I don't know why, but we all seem to have to have four kids. But that's the good thing is I'm done. I don't have to anymore. Um, but he was saying that he got home and he realized that he was just walking past them. And they weren't rushing up to see him anymore because the, the, the telly, the nice new telly they'd got was on. And the, the, they were watching their programs. And as he walked past, they were like, oh, get out of the way. And suddenly he realized the thing that he'd bought for them to bless them had been something that had taken away that relationship. You know, and, and it, it's a simple, hopefully clear anecdote, but it's the way we are with God. Sometimes we get incredible blessings from God, and those blessings can turn our hearts from him. You know, Scripture says every good gift comes from God, but you know, what have we done with it? What have we done with the blessings that God has given? I have seen this, sadly, many times in my Christian life, that I've seen couples that couldn't conceive. They've prayed for children. And the Lord has blessed them with children. And then they don't show up at church for a few weeks or a month or six months. Oh, well, we want to spend time with our family. How sad. God gives them what they've been seeking, blesses them. Or, or it might be that, that somebody's been in a situation, they've been praying for a job or a promotion or something in work, and, and the Lord has given them, granted their request, and they've got that promotion or that new job, and suddenly... Oh, I can't come to church meetings. I'm too busy. I'm too tired now. 
And the thing that God has given you and has been a blessing to you becomes a barrier between you and him. There's just a couple of examples. You can think of there's dozens of different examples. And there may be things in your own life that straight away you think, actually, yeah, that's a blessing that God has given me. And it's become something that steps in front of my relationship with God. That, that's exactly the situation that is being addressed here. That Hosea is saying, you know, like, I've given you all this stuff. I've provided for you the silver, the gold. And all you've done is you've taken it and you've worshipped other gods. And the, kind of the, the, the theme kind of changes here mid-chapter mid because it, it kind of... We break out of the uh, the type and we get to the real thing here because it's not just now talking about Israel. Sorry, talking about Hosea and Gomer. It's clearly speaking about Israel because it says this, And now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her solemn feasts. So, We've got like a, a, a dramatization of the real thing. So Hosea and Gomer are real people in a real situation, but their lives are depicting the relationship between God and Israel. But as Hosea is giving this, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit just takes over and can't, can't hold back any longer. And now the, the reality bursts through that this is actually about Israel. The whole thing here is to teach Israel a lesson and, of course, therefore, we should take note too. The references to feast days, new moons, the Sabbath. The Lord is saying, you know, that all of these things are going to cause to cease. Those wonderful things that were what made your life so wonderful. You realize how empty your life will be without God. Verse 12, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, wherefore uh, she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers has given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. Notice, you see, he starts off the chapter by Hosea speaking, and now the Holy Spirit is just coming through here, and he's speaking directly to the nation of Israel. And God is saying, you have forgotten me. And you've allowed all these other things. You think those other things, your, your, your vines, your fig trees, you thought they were going to be great, you thought they were going to give you something. For us, we could list so many things, couldn't we? Be it social media, be it a career, be it whatever. There's so many things that could get in the way of our relationship with God. Verse 14, and behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Well, that should prick up your ears, because when will Israel be drawn of God into the wilderness? Well, it's in days that are yet to come. Now, in a sense, there has been some fulfillment of this, because, of course, the northern kingdom taking captives to Assyria, and the southern kingdom taking captive to, to Babylon. You know, we can argue that those were partial fulfillments of this. But ultimately, what will happen is, the Lord will cause Israel to be taken to the wilderness, to the area of Edom, and they will be protected of the Lord. But whilst they're there in their affliction, they will look and they will seek God. And they will eventually realize that Jesus is their Messiah. So, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. We speak words of comfort to her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi. I'll explain that in a minute. And shall no more call me Baalai. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. Now, one translation puts it this way, and it shall be in that day that, uh, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. And that's what that word Ishi really means. That Israel's going to come back and God will be a husband again to her. And no more will they call them servant or master. That relationship situation will change. They, they won't be a servant to him as the master. They will be as family, as, relative, as, as a, a husband and a wife. And that's what God calls of us as well. That we would come to him and we would have that relationship. But the New Testament in Ephesians tells us that marriage which the world has completely messed up, thinking that it understands what it's doing, and it has no idea what marriage really is. Marriage is representative of Christ 
and the church. That's why God gave marriage in the first place. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Marriage is there to give us a model of this perfect relationship that God intends to have with his people. And that's why there should be the sanctity in marriage. That's why it should be one man, one woman for life. Because God wants to be our God and we his people. That's the model. That's what marriage is all about. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and I will make them to lie down safely. All of the troubles, the warfare, the, the, the conflicts Israel has faced, it will come to an end. And I will betroth thee unto me. Speaking of engagement, effectively, in our vernacular. Uh, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Are there any better words in the Bible? Thou shalt know the Lord. That we'll come to a place where all of that striving and chasing after other things will come to an end, and we will know God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will hear, saith the Lord, and I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. These things we can expound on, but just speaking of what's going to take place, is God is going to come and intervene in the affairs of the world. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, the gathering, the regathering. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy. Notice now the change. All the names that were given, we've got the twist on it now. And I will sow her, there's a Jezreel, unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people. And thou shalt say, thou art my God. So though Israel have forfeited the Mosaic covenant blessings through disobedience, yet God through faithfulness, or through God's faithfulness, they will be restored. And that's the part that Islam doesn't understand, replacement theology is completely missed, that God will restore Israel. They will be his people. They will obtain mercy, and it will be for his glory. We'll carry on next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to look at these things. Lord, there is such a depth here um, to challenge us in our lives, in our walk. Lord, help us to consider how we live and whether we have placed things that you have given us in the way of our relationship with you, that things have caused us to stop seeking you. Father, help us to love you with a pure heart and a pure mind. Lord, just speak to each one of us individually and press these things upon our hearts that we would grow in knowledge and grace and in your love, your unconditional, never-ending love for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.